I've sought all kinds of different medical tre- treatment over the years, so I've kind of experimented in everything. I've definitely done lots of acupuncture, lots of therapy, lots of herbal medicine. But personally, honestly, I, I really haven't felt, I haven't found any modality that specifically works for me. I'll try anything, but nothing, nothing seems to have like a miracle result for me. And I made that, it was kind of a joke offhand that about, you know, everything being placebo. Um, but that's partly because I come from like my, my parents are essentially Christian scientists. They're not, they're evangelicals. They don't believe in doctors. They never went to doctors. The problem is right now they don't believe in the pandemic really. I mean, they're, they're those people that think the pandemic has only really killed 6% of the people that are documented. But yeah, I've only known my parents to go to the doctor like once or twice in my entire childhood. And I think some of that mentality seeped into me of like, oh, doctors aren't real. Medicine doesn't work. Your family's religion was a big part of blankets. But like, how do they navigate that, that kind of that dichotomy of being, in a sense, anti-medicine or anti-doctors and also being so invested or having been so invested in, in Chinese medicine? Oh, my parents were not invested in Chinese medicine whatsoever. So they weren't growers of ginseng. Um, my little town in rural Wisconsin was the biggest producer of cultivated American ginseng in the world during my childhood. But it was uh, the farmers that grew ginseng were generally pri- uh, quite wealthy. In fact, our, our town was known to be full of these sort of working class snobs people who were not educated. They were farmers, but they were super wealthy. A lot of them millionaires. And I was just like one of the hired hands, as was my mom. That's how we started working in ginseng. Our mom needed supplemental income. So she'd go out and be hired out by farmers to do weeding in the ginseng gardens. As you detail, um, she, she brought you and your brother on board. That wasn't something tricky for them to, to navigate at all, that relationship? We had zero curiosity about ginseng and what it was. It was purely a job. It, it like defined the culture of our hometown, and yet we never gave it a, a second thought of like, where, what's this for? Where does it go? You know, it, it was no more interesting than growing corn growing up. At what point did you realize that it was a, a relatively unique experience? I think it was just at the start of this project. So, as an adult, yeah, it was is around this. T- like uh, like 2011 or 2012, it was 2012, right after my book tour with Habibi wrapped up and I was fishing around for the next project. That's when I, I started fiddling with this idea. But I think it must have came partly from Michael Pollan's book, Botany of Desire. I mean, that was certainly an inspiration. I got really kind of hyped up on that book where he talks about these four plants that sort of shaped human civilization as much as we've shaped them. The apple, the potato, the tulip, and cannabis. I don't know. It, it got me really inspired about this idea that the plants themselves have this story to tell. And that um, I wanted to do a book that had plants as like the central sort of protagonist rather than a human. And, and just thinking about my, reflecting my own life, I don't really have like a green thumb or a lot of direct experience with plants. And then I realized like, oh, wait a minute. I worked for an entire decade in ginseng cultivation how strange is that? No. And I started working 40 hours a week when I was 10 years old through my summers. And, um, and then when I started digging into the actual research about ginseng, suddenly it seemed a very fascinating plant to me. That is a strange thing about growing up and getting older that you can just like almost completely compartmentalize a decade of your life. And, and that it's something that like, that you hadn't really reflected on subsequently. 
in a way, I get inspired by the boring parts of my life too, because when I did blankets, I, I mean, part of the, uh, the impulse behind that is like, oh, I want to do this really big, long book where almost nothing happens. And it's very boring in a sense and simple, which at that time was not very common in comics to do something that mundane in a way. And this is similar. Like, I, you know, I don't think I would have thought about, you know, a hot second about growing up doing farm work until I realized like, oh, I haven't seen that done in comics, you know? And suddenly something that's as mundane as, as is, you know, child labor, agricultural child labor, becomes more uh, interesting in the comics form. And then this might be a bit of a, a leap, but I, th- I, th- I do think that this book is tied abstractly to Trump's election too, in the same way that Habibi was sort of tied to 9-11. You know, there's this, this processing period living on the West Coast and then Trump gets elected and nobody saw that coming and everybody's kind of devastated and confounded and, and lost. I, it made me like, I meditate more on where I came from, you know, knowing that the Rust Belt, Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, these four states were really what decided that election and having a sympathy for the sort of these kind of salt of the earth, working class people, farmers and factory workers that I grew up around and just sort of wanting to re-inhabit their mindset to sort of understand to some degree what was happening in our country. And, and that, was, that was an element of this too, of like, okay, I want to go back to, I mean, my, my upbringing is just these working class people, the exact same people that swayed that vote, the factory workers and the, the farmers. Part of what I was getting at with the parent question is there is this inherent, I don't know if tension is the right word, but obviously the, the, this juxtaposition of different, of different cultures, there's this, you know, very small town, Midwestern culture, and then this product being made for a very, in a lot of ways, you know, completely different culture on the other side of the world that is like slowly seeping in into that world to some degree. And this is a very coastal elite view of things but you know i think we do kind of tend to think of the middle of the country as you know being kind of perhaps xenophobic to some degree and so when when i do think of these two different worlds that to me presents a a kind of tension yeah you're right i mean the this this town i grew up in the population was 1200 people and the nearest nearby like quote unquote city was 35000 that's wausau wisconsin but in the 80s and 90s, it was, I guess, per capita, the whitest city in, in America. So it is a very uh, sheltered, xenophobic place. But since at least, uh, you know, the turn of the century in year, you know, 1890s, basically, they'd been growing and exporting ginseng to China. So a very, very kind of uh, homogenous community, but with a kind of longstanding relationship with uh, Chinese trade. Is your sense that in the same way, because you were exposed to it at a young age, that it was something that, you know, that you didn't really give much thought to? Is that just kind of the way the town operates, that there's been so many generations working with this specific crop that they don't really even think about it all that much? Um, I guess I can't speak for all those growers. I mean, during the processes of the book, I've been, I've been going back and interviewing farmers that I worked for as a child, most of them have retired from the industry now. And I don't see them having a lot of curiosity about, you know, the, 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 the actual, the actual medicinal side of the crop and the cultural side. And those farmers still use terms like Chinamen 
all the time, which is um, a very shocking thing to hear. Um, but the growers now that exist in the town and they, they'll be, they're interviewed in later chapters of the book that I've yet to draw are, are big time growers. So it's kind of moved from the small family farm of like two acres to a mega farms of 500 acres. Uh, just like how farming in general has changed in the U.S. The family farm, you know, doesn't really exist anymore. It's just these huge corporate mega farms. And so these growers that plant 500 acres, they they have a lot more invested in their relationship with the Asian markets. So they're going at least at least four times a year over to Hong Kong and China and Taiwan and um, really having more hands-on experience with the markets and they usually have a, a large staff that can speak Mandarin and, and whatnot now. But growing up, it was a different industry, you know. I'm, I'm trying to capture both sides of it. Do you get the sense that they understand why, why you're interested in it? Why this is something that you would interview them about? That Why this is something that you're spending, you know, so much time working on? I definitely, when I started this process of interviews, I think there was a lot of suspicion around what I was doing. And there's, there's, you know, there's uh, kind of industry secrets that, that people uh, really hold close, you know, uh, close to the chest or whatever, even amongst in, inside the community, like one farmer won't know another farmer's methods or even often where their gardens are located. Uh, they're very paranoid about like aerial surveillance of their gardens, almost like marijuana growers or something, because I don't know, like there's a, it's a, it's a competitive industry. I'm feeling paranoid lately because um, it's not like um, an agenda I have, but part of the narrative is a lot about pesticides and, and the chemicals that are used on the plants. Uh, Ginseng is a very delicate crop and it's really susceptible to all kinds of disease and fungus. Um, certainly any kind of like crop like that, that's being grown in a really dense monoculture is going to have problems with disease and um, and so it requires like uh, at least weekly pesticide and fungicide applications. Um, and I write about this a lot in issue five of the series about how like technically you're supposed to wait about three days before you let the workers in after a spray. But you're again, you're doing those sprays on a really uh, regular schedule once or twice a week. And when I when we were children, we would go in immediately following a spray. We just wait for the tractor to make its rounds and then go in while all the chemicals were still hovering and the plants were dripping wet with um, a lot of these chemicals now are not, I mean, they're no longer allowed and those regulations are changing year by year, but it's a component of the writing that I'm a little nervous because I'm not trying to do like a exposure piece, you know, but it still happens to be part of the narrative. You're paranoid about what calling people out specifically or getting someone in trouble. I think my biggest fear is I, I actually honestly do have some pride in, in the ginseng that's grown in my home community. And I do think there's probably some, they, they, they talk about the ginseng grown there as being sort of being like the sort of a Bordeaux wine region of ginseng cultivation. Like there's something really special about the terroir. I can't even say that word, but the terroir, the like, the mineral in minerals in the soil, whether, you know, those came from the, the glacier deposits and, and whatnot. And, uh, and I think there might be some connection to the 45th parallel on the globe, but there's something like kind of magic about that geography that creates very 
specific sought after routes. Um, for instance, uh, my brother and I went to on a tour of the Jilin province of China, which is in the northeast part of China, right on the border of North Korea. And uh, that's where all the ginseng is cultivated there. But we would set foot in these towns and people not knowing who we were, other than that we were white Westerners, which I don't think they had seen before in their villages, would run up to us and be like, do you want to see our, our secret stash of Wisconsin roots? It's obvious that there is, they're very sought after and, and sort of reverential attitude towards Wisconsin ginseng. On the other hand, I'm aware that there's a lot of chemicals and pesticides put on this crop, which is used for herbal medicine, you know, so there is a contradiction there. I don't know if this is going to be part of the narrative, but like what sort of destroyed the industry in my hometown was in the um, mid nineties, a lot of the tobacco growers in Ontario were kind of put out of business because the cigarette industry was declining and they just uh, started to use all of their equipment and land to switch over to ginseng farming. So it's actually the um, Canadians that started this sort of mega farm version of ginseng cultivation. But the quality of the roots may forever be lower than ours because in fact, there's, there's actually more regulation on our soil in the US than in Canada, or at least um, it started here sooner. And so that's really compelling to me too, that when you're growing it like a sort of really sensitive crop like that and a root crop, um, it's extracting things in the soil that are there for hundreds of years. I, I mean, I think that's why it's also uh, potent in Chinese medicine, because you hear these legends of thousand year old ginseng roots and stuff. And those probably have thousands and thousands of years of soil minerals in them. But whatever's in the soil sticks around a long time. And, uh, and that's the thing I learned more and more from ginseng farmers too. If, if someone planted ginseng on a plot of land, a hundred years later, they still can't grow ginseng there. There's some residue or transmitters left in the soil that uh, prevents it from being grown there again. It sounds like one of the biggest problems that you're having with this is figuring out which threads to follow. It, it, it almost sounds like an embarrassment of riches. I mean, you, you know, obviously you've gotten a you know, number of, uh, of floppies out of it, but... Um... How clear is it at this point in the process what you want to cover and where you want to go with it? Uh, I had I had a very uh, like set deadline or outline when I started the whole project, and I'd say the first six issues I had mapped out pretty detailed, like they were pretty well written. And as I get farther in the book, I'm I'm kind of moving more into the territory that I don't have written out yet. I just have the loosest elevator pitch outline, and then the research gets a little more complicated as I go deeper. So. In a couple of issues, I have to start going through these interviews I did with Taiwanese pharmaceutical researchers. And I don't know if I can, I mean, I don't know what I'll be able to extract from those interviews. Um, there's, there's a language barrier or, and, and there's a lot of scientific information. And I don't know how much I'll be able to comprehend alone. But also, I don't know how much is really necessary in the end for the sort of heart of the story. So I do like these detours, but I know that the thing that's probably going to suck in the general reader is just the, that personal element of our childhood experience. You know, I, early on, I learned that I was, when I started researching the book and I was describing to people what I was working on, I could see their eyes glaze over. Then when I would say, oh, but I worked in ginseng for 10 years when I was a kid, starting when I was 10, then they were invested. So I, I do recognize that that's, that's kind of the, that's really the, the through line, the red thread that ties it all together. It's just following uh, my brother and I through our, our youth 
doing this childhood labor. The closest analog I can think of in comics is uh, Kevin Heisanga's stuff. I love his stuff. And he, you know, obviously Glenn Ganges is his primary character. And I think he does probably some, you know, some of the best or perhaps the best science stuff in comics. The stuff he does about, you know, trees or, or you know, uh, animals, nature is great. But like, he does always have Glenn Ganges as a kind of an anchor or a centerpiece or something that he can go back to. Do, do you see your own story serving a, a similar role? I hope so. I mean, he's definitely an inspiration. He's much smarter than me. You know, I, I envy his yeah, I mean, he's an amazing writer and, and much more articulate. But yeah, I would, you know, I'm also a big fan of Moby Dick and not to put this project on that level, but I'm, I'm, I am drawing some inspiration from that model. I love how you're like, yeah, I don't know if I'm as good of a writer as Kevin Heisinger. Yeah, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know if I'm writing the second great American novel, but no, I, I think Moby Dick is such a fun book to read. I know Jeff Smith is a huge fan too. And and that and and again, there's a sort of a genius level writer who who's like just able to write so articulately about all these different subjects. But I like that the book it has this emotional through line, but then it just has all this freedom to just detour and go really, you know, kind of off the rails for a while in the more in the science and whatnot. I'm, I think I'm about like four or five or six books deep right now in the reading. However, however many Tom. Do you, do you get the sense that you're naturally kind of drawn away from your own story as you're writing this, as, as you're pulling those threads? That's a good question. Um, so issue six is very much, that's like the issue that I felt was kind of like blankets too, which is always the joke that that's what the readers actually want is blankets too. And that one, I, lo- I wrote a lot more about like more personal stuff and um, some religious stuff and a lot of teenage angst. You know, every every issue is completely challenging in its own way. So, and it, it's very similar to like with my my books in general. Like when I finish a project, I'm so sick of the subject matter and and the drawing style, and and I just want to do something completely different with the next book. And now I'm finding that at a more accelerated rate. You know, by the time I'm finishing a 30 page issue, I'm just like, oh, this is a disaster. You know, and I hate whatever the theme of this issue is. And then I go into the next issue being like, okay, I'm going to go off in a totally different direction. And, and, and I, I, by the time I reach the end of that one too, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sick of it again. Like it's not your first book, but really, you know, huge, hugely popular and, and probably to this day, the, the one that people most closely associate with you. I mean, do you feel like that at a relatively early stage in your career doing that book and having it be as popular as it was, was a bit of a double-edged sword for you? I don't know. No, I don't think so. Cause I didn't really get I, I, as successful as that book has gotten. I didn't get this sort of immediate success that say um, a graphic novelist will today or has, you know, I, I didn't hit the sort of success to say a Raina Tegelmeyer or, or someone of her caliber. Um, I had worked, you know, by the time that book came out, you know, I had worked at least 20 different day jobs, you know, so I had pretty much a whole lifetime of career before, you know, up in front of me or behind me. And, um, and also like the book um, was not, it was selling well, but I wasn't getting paid for those copies for so, so long that it didn't change my financial lifestyle. Yeah, but, but I guess there's, it's truth that like I haven't had another hit on that sort of level. 
to have that level of success with a book that was that personal. Is that, was that part of the reason why you felt that you wanted to move away from memoir? Yeah, for sure. Because when I created, when I was working on blankets, I didn't think anybody would see it. And that gave me a lot of freedom. And I do think that's the strength of that book is that I was naive and, and, and sort of pure. Like I did not feel the audience audiences like gaze upon what I was doing. And, and so uh, it was very free, you know, and then afterwards, um, you know, I had all kinds of fallout, whether that was like, sort of like my family, my parents specifically being upset, me needing to learn how to like have boundaries with readers, you know, that was something that that was a learning process. Yeah, it was just so, and and also, I don't know, uh, I never had that sort of innocence again of not being aware of the readership. When I went into my next project, which was Habibi, I had definitely had that sophomore slump sort of energy of like, oh, there's all this expectation now. There's this performance anxiety, which I didn't have prior. But also, yeah, like once I learned that people are actually looking at it, I didn't feel like as comfortable revealing my personal life. And I think with the ginseng roots, it's nice because I'm reflecting on basically something that happened 30, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. But I don't know if I could do a Carnet de Voyage, for instance, which was a real time memoir. Um, I couldn't expose my, I couldn't do like the Joe Matt style, expose what's really happening in my life at this moment. It's, it's easier when it's reflective, like decades past. In a lot of ways, I don't think you necessarily have a lot of Joe Matt in you when it comes to <laughs> writing comics. There might be a degree of it at some of the books, you know, of being like hyper-personal, but you know, he, he is one of those. And, and there, there are a number of cartoonists who are like this, who are personal to such a fault that it can almost feel like, like maybe they're putting like too much of themselves on the page. I, I respect that though. I like it. I like the, the awkward discomfort of a Joe Matt comic. I'm eager to read Adrian Tomini's new, uh, new book, which I, it's this damn pandemic. I need to just get online and order it, but I, I miss so much just walking over to my shop and picking up the book I want, you know, but uh, have you read that one yet? I have. Yeah. No, I had him on the show too. It's- Okay, I got to listen to that interview. It's a very high bar, but it might actually be my favorite book by him. That's exciting. Yeah, and and, and knowing that's out there, just the idea of it excites me. And so, yeah, I want to see that that sort of uh, awkward, uh, personal, hopefully some cringeworthy sort of uh, personal stories out of Adrian, you know, and getting back to some of that vibe of his mini comics era too. What's the hang up about Carnegie de Voyage of, of doing something that you're not that far removed from? Well, in a way that was at the time kind of the most fulfilling of my books because it was so raw and unedited. I just did it in two and a half months versus years and years and of labor. It was a very off the cuff book. So I'd love to get back to that way of drawing, of drawing with that sort of loose ease. Yeah, I don't know if I'm ready to ex- expose my real time private life in that way. When I was on that trip, you know, I spent a lot of time with Louis Trondheim in Montpellier, and he was telling me about uh, Joan Sfar and how he basically lost all his close friends because everything that you know happened with them, he would take their personal stories and put them directly into his comics, which makes for compelling comics, but it was not great for friendship. And, uh, and in the course of this conversation, Louis started like kind of telling me some personal stuff that I found really profound. I was like, oh man, this, this, this conversation got deep. And I did want to draw it later that night. I went, I went back and I'm like, I got to draw that. And then I realized like, oh, wait, 
that was Luce's story. He told me something really personal. I can't put that in a book, you know? So right away I was running into that sort of wall with, with the real time memoir of like, Oh, okay. The best stuff is, is kind of part of other people's stories. And, and I don't have the, the right to make that public. It's one thing to expose all of yourself. Like that's, that's absolutely your, your right and privilege to do it. It's crossing a different line entirely when it comes to, you know, people who are in your life, especially like people who like didn't necessarily sign up to be in your life. Do, do you feel, is there any regret with, uh, with regards to how much of your parents you put into blankets? Yes. Yeah, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of regret about it. And, and it exists in this new book too. It's very frustrating when I'm trying to depict these, you know, these real experiences, you know, and, uh, and being aware that they're also like, I don't know, manipulating the memory and, 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 you know, you know, all documentary is a very contrived medium. Anytime you're just taking real life and, and, and patching it back together, editing it in, in a new form, you know, it gets manipulated. So, yeah, I'm not comfortable with that. So yeah, so I, I remember having a conversation with a cartoonist friend about how he thought that autobio comics are the easiest to make, but the least fun to read. But I think the reverse equation is true. I think they're the most difficult to make, but they're really fun to read. And and so it's just, just that juggling act. But yeah, it makes me uncomfortable depicting my parents, you know, it makes me uncomfortable depicting all these farmers. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that some of these farmers were using jargon like Chinamen that made me really uncomfortable. I was talking with this uh, to a friend about this and they said, well, you, are you going to put that in the book? Right. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to put that in the book. And they're like, why not? And I'm like, well, I don't want to throw those people under the bus. You know, like I don't want this to be a kind of gotcha journalism thing. You know, I'm not trying to do Sasha Baron Cohen. Somebody says something embarrassing. I don't, you know, I don't want to capitalize on that. And they have the opposite attitude. I'm like, they're like, but you have to expose this wrong they're doing, you know, then only then can they maybe become aware, more self-aware about stuff like that. But I just don't feel like that's my, my job with this project. There must've been hesitation on their part when you told them that you were doing another book about growing up and, and something that they would potentially play a role in. Yes, definitely. I write about this a bit in issue two of this series about how when I was back home for a ginseng festival, everyone seemed kind of eager to talk about ginseng until they learned that I might be doing a book about it. And then suddenly the stories just stopped instantly. And my mom was like, nope, I can't remember anything about working in the ginseng. And like a minute prior, she was, you know, they were flowing out of her. But my mom, my mother doesn't remember anything about her childhood. So that's something about something I'm processing too, I think with this project is I don't really know uh, I didn't really know my grandparents, both on my mom and dad's side. I've probably met them two or three times total. And on my mom's side, I really, really know nothing about her family. I don't know what her parents did for a living, for instance. And uh, so there's, you know, there's just a big gap. There's something missing in knowing where I actually come from. Because my parents, when they became born again Christians, they really divorced themselves from the, their families. And the weird thing is, is I'm working on the ginseng book, which I can tell they have some discomfort with. Somehow it also ex starts to extract their own childhood stories from them. So for the very first time in my life, I'm hearing my mom say some random thing about her father uh, here or there, which I've, I've never previously known nothing. So, so there's something to that. I don't know how to explain it though. But it is kind of like what I say. Another thing about autobio is I think when you're reading someone's personal story, it kind of helps you access those those sort of locked rooms within yourself too. 
like you suddenly start like unlocking little doors of your own experience in the same way that that you're trying to keep you know how far down any of these rabbit holes you go in check when it comes to the ginseng do you similarly have to keep these family stories in check so far i haven't been keeping them too much in check so uh, issues 2 and 6 i think like some of the more personal family stuff really comes to the foreground and that's not a conscious desire you know that's in spite of myself i sort of resist that from happening and then it, it bubbles up and happens in the book anyway how did you talk them into to some degree participating in this book again after what happened with blankets i don't think i was trying to manipulate them my sincere directive with this project was to write about ginseng and have ginseng be the central protagonist sure but there there must have been some degree of of you like having to bring them back into the fold of like them feeling like perhaps they had been burned or at least like not really appreciated the process of having a book about them being out there there must have been some convincing on your part that they weren't going to go through that again yeah well i mean my intention, and we'll see what happens, but my intention is not to get overly personal with this. So we'll, we'll see how that pans out. Also, uh, part of the choice to serialize is I was hoping in serialization, there would be a much more of a call and response quality to the writing. I thought like, oh, I could write a chapter and release it to the public. And then someone would come out of the woodwork and, and uh, add or refute what I was doing that could take the book in a new direction. I wanted it to have that sort of uh, redirect potential. Uh, and the same applies to my parents. I was like, oh, if I put out an issue and they dislike it, maybe the follow-up issue is them retorting and correcting the information from their viewpoint. Neither of those things have necessarily materialized yet, but that, that, that's embedded in my desire to do serialization. Like, well, what if it gets to autocorrect itself in real time? As, I, as I'm writing and drawing it. I had heard you talk about this a little bit with regard to drawing somebody with a NASCAR shirt on. They felt like it wasn't something that represented like who they were. Yeah, I can explain that. So in issue five, I uh, interviewed some childhood friends who are doing ginseng farming now. And, and, and I heard that they were unhappy with their representation and, and that perhaps I made them look like Hicks. And I felt terrible. And, but on one level, I'm like, well, I guess I, I do kind of think of my, everyone that comes from my hometown, myself included, as being kind of hicks, you know. It's a small farm town. And, uh, but apparently they, they don't have any uh, fondness for NASCAR. They just happen to be wearing a, like a beater NASCAR shirt because it was a, a shirt that they could get dirty out in the ginseng. And now they're like, oh, now I'm depicted forever having this NASCAR shirt. So maybe I correct that for the... Um, the final graphic novel edition. On the other hand, I don't think the reader is necessarily going to judge someone because of their NASCAR shirt. But uh, yeah, I've heard, I've had, you know, I think uh, I've, I heard someone like a reader respond to how I was depicting some, some of the people at the Wisconsin ginseng festival. And they thought like it was very reverent towards the Asian tourist, but it was very satirical of the Wisconsin natives, for instance. And I'm like, well, that's not my intention either. I mean, you know, like, it's the problem. I know Joe Sacco talks about it all the time. Whenever you're like trying to translate what you're looking at in cartoon form, some of it's going to come off as caricature. And part of the fun is caricature. I know that Joe um, is, has, over the years has felt more bogged down by having to dial everything in precisely. You start to veer into photo, photorealism, you know, and it, you lose this, that sort of vitality of cartooning. 
So he would love to get back to sort of the Palestine era like caricature used to do. I spoke to him a week or two ago about his new book and, and it very much sounds like he has to fight against his instincts in order to do that, that repertoire style. Obviously, you know, you, you, have, you have a specific style. You're, you're not trying to draw things photorealistically. Yeah, I love Joe's new book, Paying the Land, a lot. But I did pull out Palestine recently, and, and, and there's a vitality to that book, you know, that, that, that does start to disappear in later projects because he's being so precise in the realism of everything. You know, like I, I do miss the cartoony elements in his older work. But yeah, for me, I don't really have a choice. Like everything kind of is this weird hybrid of, 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 you know, maybe because I draw with a brush, you know, like you can't get too photorealistic. And again, you, you know, you've got a very, uh, very signature style, but also you're making very conscious choices to have like a, a talking cartoon ginseng root. Yes. Yeah, that was, uh, when that, I, I don't remember when that happened. I think in a way that part of that was wanting to tap again my original intention to have the ginseng itself be the central character. But I think it was also looking at um, maybe manga or something like that and being very envious of like when they have these little like iconic cartoon characters, you know, like I, I, I have a fondness for that sort of Dr. Seuss, like, you know, Lorax character. That's actually what I was probably tapping the most with my little uh, ginseng root. Also, I was reading a lot of the ginseng root legends from China and Korea and um, they always involve, you know, that little ginseng coming alive and running through the forest. And, and uh, I, w- I think I was illustrating one of those tales and I just got really attached to the, the character, you know, but I don't, I don't know. That's a strength of cartooning in comics, I guess, is, is being able to have that sort of fantastical thing. And those are probably the funnest sequences to draw. You're not wetting yourself to realism. You're not forcing realism on this, that you're able to do that. Comics would be a bad medium for, for real straight realism, really. But, you know, versus again, what, what, what Joe is doing, you know, obviously like, you know, he takes liberty. And as I discussed with him, like he still very much draws himself as a caricature, you know, even though everyone else around him is realistic, but you're obviously in this case less less interested in that. I wonder how much of that is knowing that this is a project that you're going to be working on for a long time. So you're trying to give yourself ways that you know you're going to kind of recapture some of that joy of the process of creation. Yeah, that's it probably precisely. As I'm always trying to figure out how to recapture the joy of comics. Certainly for, uh, man, at least the past decade, you know, like everything I do is like, uh, how do I make this enjoyable again? Because it's been a long time that, you know, that it's not easily enjoyable. Has it not been enjoyable over the past decade? I mean, the, the longer you're in the industry, the, it's very easy to get cynical, you know, just to see the way that like authors are exploited. And so like, it seems like everybody around them profits except for the authors themselves. So I think it's just the, you know, that's a part of it, you know, just seeing a lot of the sleazy side of the industry, you know, and then, yeah, I've had a lot of health problems over the years too. So drawing has been a real challenge, but it's been a challenge since the Carnet de Voyage era, era, as far as like getting my hands, hands to operate and stuff. I know a lot of cartoonists talk about similar sort of things. But yeah, when you're drawing as a child, you know, it's just a very instinctual, joyful sort of hobby. 
And, and once it becomes your job and you're doing it 12 hours a day, you know, it becomes a, a, a bit, a bit of a drag. So there's always a, a way, I don't know, always trying to find a way to make it, make it fun. I, I heard your interview with Dan Klaus where he, even he, someone on that sort of echelon, like talking about, you know, like how like year by year, you're kind of trying to figure out, can I keep doing this? You know, is this this sustainable? You know, it's a very hard, difficult way to make a living. You know, should I find, you know, and, and I was in Los Angeles for a while and just seeing how people thrive in the animation industry, at least financially, you know, it's very enviable from the comic book artist's standpoint. There are the pragmatic issues of, of you know, trying, obviously like just trying to make a living at it. There's the, the health issues. Is it carpal tunnel? No, I, I have a, I have a bunch of, it's, I don't even want to get into my health issues, but, but I have some pretty mangled hands. So, and, and they've been kind of getting messed up since my twenties. You touched on a little, little bit in the book. I don't know if it's related, but there is a, a scene where the doctor basically says he's injured his hand by drawing too much. This, this is something that goes back pretty far. Yeah, I have. Since I was in third grade, I've had a lot of issues with my hands, actually. And I don't, I don't know if there's a correlation, but, you know, I was also working for 40 hours a week in pesticides, you know. So um, some of those pesticides cause all kinds of deformities. Doing manual labor, I'm sure, is also probably pretty difficult on the hands. Yeah, it's probably the combination, the, the weeding where you're like, yeah, up so close and, and just grinding those chemicals into your hands. I'm sure they can have some detrimental. I mean, a lot of field workers in America, you know, that's mostly Latino workers, um, have, have a lot of these same issues. They're slow with releasing the studies, but there's definitely some correlation. Is the actual process of making a comic, is the process of drawing when your hands aren't aching is is that still enjoyable there's parts that are enjoyable like i really love i really love the earliest stages that are just sort of brainstorming in a sketchbook that's the closest uh experience to like drawing as a child is really just drawing for my own consumption um sketchbooks in general are very fun i I think that's the, the pleasurable side of of being a drawer so yeah, after the sketchbooks, the most fun process uh, in comics making is the thumbnailing. That's sort of like the, the loose, loose drawn version of the book. Uh, and that's when you're kind of breaking down all the, the, the layouts and, and, and the panels and, and the real mechanics of comics making. And, uh, but it's loosely drawn, you know, it's not, there's nothing like, uh, like labored over yet, you know? So it's just the rhythm of the comics. It's like the notation and that part's fun. But then like the rest is kind of like uh, my painter friend compares it to mowing the lawn. You know, it's this laborious process of, uh, of executing the final pages and getting things right. Granted, I, I live in New York, so I haven't mowed a lawn in a long time, but it could be a meditative process. I mean, it, it can be enjoyable. Yes, you're right. No, there's that too, though. And it's still like, it's still, there's still a compulsion to do it. You know, when I'm not making, when I'm not writing or drawing, you know, I have a a different kind of anxiety that like, oh, I want to be back at the drawing table. So then you get to the drawing table and then you're miserable in a different kind of way. But, you know, there's definitely a, a compulsion to do it. You know, and then, so, so I guess I was going to say like the third part of the, the pleasure. So if like the sketchbook phase is really fun the thumbnails, there's a lot of satisfaction there. Then it's a lot of just hard labor in between. The release of a book can be super painful, but some of the travel is very fulfilling. So being able to travel 
around the world and, and realize that the book has connected to a wide audience. That's, that's really fulfilling and feeling, you know, the, the work connecting to a, a wider audience. It, comics is very lonely work, you know, like pe- people have been complaining about pandemic isolation, but that's sort of like the reality that cartoonists live in all the time. A lot of my friends now are contacting me like, no, now I get you. Now I know what you're talking about. Like this sucks being trapped inside alone for 12 hours a day, you know? Obviously, you know, you've, you've worked out this great deal with, with, with Tom at Uncivilized where, where you're serializing it. And as somebody who is like, when you do put out a book, you put out a lot of, or a couple of really massive books that obviously just, you know, sucked up like, seven or so years of your life, you found a way to short circuit that process in an interesting way in terms of like getting feedback and, and being more, more social and just, you know, meeting it out and breaking it up into chunks. And I wonder, you know, you talked about this a little bit with regards to Carney de Voyage that you were able to sort of tap into that kind of loose style. What's standing between you and, putting something that's a little more direct or a little more sketchy out into the world? Uh, that's a great question. I was really hoping this book would look like Carnet de Voyage, but it, it just doesn't. I don't know. You know, it's not like created on the fly in that sort of way. And, uh, and yeah, they're just different beasts. But no, ultimately, you know, whatever comes after this book, I want to try to get back to that sort of Carnet de Voyage. That's what I'm always reaching for is that spontaneous style. It's an issue of letting the content dictate the style then? No, I don't know if that is it because this, I mean, I would love for this to be more loose, you know, and I tried early on drawing loosely. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have a direct answer. I mean, I, my instinct is to say like, oh, when I'm happier in life, I'll be able to work like that again, but I don't know. How much has the pandemic affected your work? Pandemic really hasn't changed the work at all. You know, like it, it is basically the same lifestyle and I was making zero money beforehand. So making zero money now is also the same. It changed my life in the sense that like I was living alone in, in Portland and, and, and because I couldn't have a social life, usually I was, you know, I'd work like 12 hours a day and then go out every night and spend time with friends. And because that stopped, uh, I couldn't really sustain the living alone thing. So that's why I came out here to Minneapolis to live with my brother. And, and that's been amazing. I love living with him. And, you know, and because we're collaborating on parts of the book to it, it, it helps in that way too. It's not an experience we necessarily get a lot with comics. I mean, obviously there's a lot of people out there uh, doing autobiography and doing memoir and comics, but this is a really interesting opportunity in that you are not only returning to memoir, but are like quite literally going back to the same period of, of your life. And you, you, you very much, you, you, uh, you, you break down the fourth wall and you draw attention to the fact that your sister was, was <laughs> left out of, out of blankets. Obviously, like, you know, it's, she was a really big part of your life growing up, even if you weren't necessarily as close to her as you were with your brother. But um, for me as a reader, one of the most fascinating things beyond uh, you know, all the ginseng content is watching you kind of reveal the stuff that you didn't reveal or that you chose to leave out in, in that first book. Yes. That was a way of exposing, you know, the, the sort of problems with autobiography or exposing the, you know, the, the sort of fictions that happen when you're trying to, to work this way. So I wanted to be transparent in that way. 
You know, and I just had like a, a sort of random thought as you were asking me that question about, I was just complaining about, you know, like how I don't really enjoy making comics anymore. And that was a big impulse for this project too, is sort of um, meditating on, on labor and uh, thinking about, you know, this, like I grew up with a really strong work ethic, like um, this sort of Midwestern attitude that like you're not even supposed to do fulfilling work. People don't pursue fulfilling work where I come from. You just, it's just the sweat of your brow for the sweat of your brow's sake. That's its own reward. The the sort of torture of hard labor. <laughs> you know, I realized like, oh, I've been doing this for so long that I'm totally spoiled and I take it for granted that I, you know, this was my dream to be able to hide inside from all the elements of weather and just doodle for a living. I can step outside of myself and see that, you know, this is, is an ideal scenario, but I kind of wanted to like go back, revisit the more uh, hard labor I used to do and the work ethic that went along with that. I don't know. I mean, I think that those sort of qualities are kind of going away in general in, in probably American culture. And I don't, I don't place a judgment on that one way or another, but you know, it's it's something I'm meditating on with this project. You know, maybe you don't necessarily pass judgment on it as it pertains to like society or other people, but somewhere I read or heard you describe it. I don't know if this is a paraphrase or d- direct quote, but as working class guilt, which I thought was a really interesting way of, of putting it. I mean, is that something that has been pervasive for you throughout your career of making comics? Or is that something that you're really just starting to grapple with again now? have a lot of in, like working class insecurity and, and uh, lack of confidence, basically, because I never graduated high school. You know, my education ends pretty early on. And then I just was thrown into the workforce. So I have a lot of insecurity about my sort of lack of, you know, academic background. And I sort of have uh, stumbled my way to this pro- uh, privileged, you know, sp- spot where, uh, you know, I get to make a living in the creative arts. And then my peers are people from creative circles and academic circles and, and whatnot. And then, yeah, I guess that's, so there's definitely a working class insecurity that I'll, there's an imposter syndrome that like, oh, you know, I'm not like these people. I didn't come from, from education or, or other forms of privilege, you know? And so I'll just be exposed as the hick. There's a term again that I actually am. That's not something that subsides or goes away after the fourth or fifth or sixth book? No, it seems to get worse, I think, because you can't really shake to some degree what you, where you come from. So I'm kind of kind of just trying to reconcile that a bit. But yeah, the working class guilt too is like, I have always kind of felt too, like what I do is not real work, you know, because I, I know what the sort of hard labor stuff is. And, uh, you know, I'm very not, you know, I'm not very... Uh, uh, <laughs> manly in that sense of like doing and even as an adult I don't do any of those real uh, I don't have any of those real tangible manly skills you know doing fixing cars and you know doing construction and all, a lot of my friends do and I and so I do feel insecurity around that too not that you're ever hiding where you came from or what you did but you know this is a way of just show of t- showing people like hey this is you know like th- this is who I am and this is this is me and this is this is where I came from maybe imposter in the sense that like, you know, you didn't, your, your experiences are different from them, but certainly not in the sense of trying to hide your past. Yeah. I don't think I do. I don't think I try to hide my past. I, I, and the reason that I am, the reason I'm getting sidetracked too, is because it's like what I'm trying to untangle in the project. So I don't really have the answers yet, you know, hoping on the other end of this, I can be more articulate in an answer. What's the hang up here specifically? 
I just don't, I think like the books that I work on, I never really quite know what I'm writing about. I have like a vague theme, but it's not until I like emerge on the other side of the tunnel that it's like, and maybe that's normal for most authors, maybe not screenwriters. Screenwriters are supposed to know what like the end of the book, you know, the story is and then work backwards um, and then have their clear three acts or 15 story beats, et cetera. But for me, it's much more of an exploration and, the, and there are always things that I don't really know how to articulate articulate any other way. So like Blankets was a coming out project to my parents about my fall from Christian faith. And it was like really the only vehicle I knew for expressing those things. I didn't have any of the verbal skills or conversational skills uh, to, to talk about it. You know, I only had comics to express it. And, uh, and the same with this project. Like I have these kind of like themes around, you know, labor and class, agriculture and pharmaceuticals, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't, they're not, none of them are articulated thoughts yet. And, 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 and sometimes that doesn't really happen until post-publication. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's what I was doing. I didn't realize it. That must be exacerbated by the fact that, that it is serialized and it's kind of in the process of changing as you're writing it because you are doing adjustments. So you must have even less of an idea than usual what the overarching theme is. Yeah. And I do try to just focus on that, those 30 page issues in front of me. So hopefully it doesn't come off being disjointed because in a way the other concerns and the, in the broader story kind of fall away as I'm just dialed in on an issue. And I've never worked this way either where I have to like conserve page count. Most of my books are pretty sprawling. And if like, I want a chapter be a hundred pages, that's what I do. But now I have this very specific constraint of the 30 pages. And so, yeah, that, that demands enough of my concentration, just trying to figure out how to like shoehorn what I want it fit into a chapter into that limited page count. You definitely feel like you're on the right track here with this book. No, never. I never feel like I'm, I've never, never, I've never had confidence in any project I've ever done. Less or more so than usual here. To me, it seems like less, but when I talk to those around me who have been around through each book they're like no you're always like this you always think that you're just not you're just making a total piece of garbage you know and so yeah it's pretty much my my you know so that's part of it too i mean i need to have some sort of like total shift of attitude in general towards what i do i've spent like 20 years just thinking that everything i draw is complete garbage at some point that has to shift you know i have to be more acceptant of of myself and the work so that i can enjoy it like i did when i was a child 